Welcome back to our online podcast here. My name is Gregory Baines, and I am on staff at First Baptist Keller. Today, we are going to look at the book of um, Colossians. We finished last week the book of Philippians, and so now we get to look at another one of the Apostle Paul's letters, this time to the church at Colossae. This church was not founded by Paul, but by a man named Epaphras. Epaphras was from Colossae and had heard and believed the gospel while in another town, then had come back home to share the gospel with the people in his hometown. Several churches were planted in what's called the Lycus Valley by Epaphras, and some of those cities we know, Laodicea is one. Um, These churches were made up of a mixture of Jewish and Gentile believers. Now, Epaphras came in the context for this letter to give Paul a report on these believers from the Lycus Valley, and they were believers that Paul had had never met. We'll see in chapter 2 that Paul gives this understanding that he has not been there and seen them. So Epaphras comes and gives Paul a report on these believers, and um, Paul addresses this report in the greeting of this letter. Let's read that greeting together. Open your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, um, and then we're going to spend our, our time today, though, focusing on verses 9 through 23. So let's read 1 through 8 together, see this greeting from Paul. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So Paul is happy to meet them essentially here in this greeting and thankful that the gospel has penetrated their hearts and and changed them and thankful for Epaphras's service in that and, and just addresses that report. Now, in order for us to fully understand this letter, this book, we need to understand the context for the writing. After these churches have, had been planted sometime later, a heretical teaching began to affect the Colossian church and maybe infect is a better word there. Epaphras was so concerned with this false teaching that he traveled the over 1,300-mile journey to Rome, where Paul was in prison, uh, to seek help from the apostle. This heretical teaching had several elements that Paul is going to address directly or kind of hint at in this letter, and it comes from the two different groups that are within this church. There's Gentile believers and there's Jewish believers here. For the Gentiles, the issue was in their background that there was a great emphasis on knowledge 
and philosophy, and they had placed a great value there. And this led some of them to believe that salvation was by Jesus plus some kind of special knowledge. Now, this sounds a lot like the heresy of the second century that was called Gnosticism, but Gnosticism did not officially exist here. But maybe we see some of the roots of that in this heresy in this church and and some of the similarities here you might recognize if you're familiar with that. But here's what, what they taught. And one is that God is good, which is true, but the issue is they thought that physical matter was evil. So therefore, Jesus couldn't have been a physical man. And if he was a physical man, then he wasn't God. So they denied either the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. And we know that Jesus is fully God and fully man. They also thought that Jesus must be a lesser type of angel. Um, And in this teaching, we see that Jesus is not sufficient or enough It was Christ plus knowledge, Christ plus a deeper understanding and philosophy. There were also Jewish believers in this church, and the Jewish people placed a great value in ceremony and tradition and ceremonial law, and this led some of them to believe that these things were necessary for salvation. Ceremonial laws, dietary restrictions, and circumcision were all things that they thought could earn them salvation along with Jesus. In their mind then, Jesus' sacrificial atoning death was not enough for salvation. So this is what Paul is writing to address. This is why he's writing the letter to this group of churches he hasn't met, and this letter was meant to be circulated. We'll see that in chapter 4. He was to correct this false teaching and to encourage them to walk in the reality of the new life that they've been given in Christ. Like many of Paul's letters, he deals first with their theology in chapters 1 and 2, then gives some application in chapters 3 and 4. I would encourage you to read this letter um, in its entirety sometime this week. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes and and will really help give you an understanding of the the whole context of the letter. But for our lesson today, we're going to read and focus on, again, verses 9 through 23 of chapter 1. So let's read um, 9 through 12 together. We'll kind of break it down into small pieces and, and talk about it as we go along. Colossians 1 verse 9 says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share and the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul is continually praying for them here. Look in in verse 9, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. He is lifting them up in prayer to the Lord, and and there's one simple thing that he is asking, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is his prayer. Now, God's will is not a great mystery um, to us. It has been revealed. He is a self-revealing God, and and he has done that for us today in his Bible. And, And so, 
Um, what is then the prayer for? Well, it's not just reading of Scripture that changes our lives, but the, the reading of Scripture illuminated by the Holy Spirit. This is our doctrine of, of revelation and illumination. It takes the Spirit of God working in a person's heart for them to be, be changed by this word of truth. Now, um, this is what Paul prays for them, that they would be not just aware of the knowledge of God's will, but they would be full of it, that they would be filled with the knowledge of who he is and and what he desires them to do. So this simple prayer carries great consequences or repercussions in their life. Let's look back at 10 through 12. After Paul prays this, that they would be filled um, with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, he then talks about what the results of being filled look like. Verse 10 says, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. When someone is filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. They will please Him. They will be um, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge of God. They'll be strengthened with power according to His might and be full of steadfastness and patience. And what we see is what we believe changes how we live. If not, then we don't truly believe it. So, Paul's prayer is that they would be full of the knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding, which wisdom and understanding there are similar words, so it's, it's emphasized here that they would, they would understand and know and, and live that way. And then, um, after Paul presents this prayer, he goes into this section on Christology. Now, there's a few passages in Scripture that talk a lot about Jesus, and Colossians 1 is one of them. We're going to see who Jesus is, and he wants to deal with the heresy that, that is being taught and believed there by by presenting them with the truth of who Christ is. So let's see here who Jesus is in verse 13. For he, the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Paul's teaching about who Jesus is is crucial to our understanding here. Um, This is truth, right? This is God's word revealed to us. And it's important for us to ask the question whenever we read something that talks about who Christ is, um, who do I believe Jesus is? This is the question we must ask. 
Because if it's not in line with what God's Word says Jesus is, something needs to change because there's nothing wrong with this Word. It's perfect. The issue is with our belief. So as we look here at who Christ is, there's a couple things I want to explain, and then we'll really talk about who Jesus is and what he's done. The first thing that we need to look at is this phrase in verse 15, firstborn of all creation. Now, um, one time when I was in a Sunday school class, not at at this church, at a different church, uh, the teacher made this statement, when God created Jesus, and we all kind of just paused and and looked at each other um, and couldn't believe that he had just said this, that God created Jesus. But there are some people who really believe that Jesus is the highest created being there is. And if we took this phrase out of context, we might be confused to believe this as well. But in the context of the verses around it, what do we see? We see that he is the image of the invisible God and that all things were created through him and for him. Also, the same word that is used here, firstborn, is also used in verse 18 that says he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, if this word means that chronologically Jesus is the first created or the first to be raised from the dead, then we know we have a bigger problem. The Bible says that many people were raised from the dead before Christ's resurrection chronologically. So it obviously cannot mean that he was the first created thing or the first made. And there's actually a Greek word that means first created that Paul could have used here. But instead, he uses this this term firstborn of all creation. Now, culturally, the firstborn son had the first place. The firstborn was of the utmost importance and number one. So this passage, instead of claiming that Christ is a created being, which was the heresy that was being taught, Paul is emphasizing his deity. All things were created through him. He is God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God shown to us. He is the Lord of all creation, and he has first place. So firstborn of all creation does not mean that Christ was created. It simply means he is the first. He has the inheritance. He has the title. He is in charge. He is the head. Now let's look at this phrase in verse 19, all the fullness to dwell in him. Divine power and divine attributes all dwell in Christ, the image of the invisible God. All the fullness of deity lives in Jesus, and that is the fullness that is referred to here. This whole passage is shouting, Jesus is God, Jesus is the Lord, he is the creator of all, all things hold together in him. So now let's look at who Christ is and what Christ has done in these passages. There's a few things here. One, he is the image of the invisible God, that's who he is. He is before all things, he is head of the church, creation, and all other things. He is in charge, he is number one, the firstborn, he has the title, he is the king. And also in this passage, we see not just who Jesus is, but what he's done. He created all things. He holds all things together currently, actively. That's what he's doing. And he has reconciled and will ultimately reconcile all things to himself. This is an amazing passage that gives us great insight to who Jesus is and what he's done. He's the king of all. He is not one uh, to be trifled with. He is before all things. So if this is not your view of Christ, 
Let it change. Let it come under the authority of Scripture and believe who Jesus is. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a a weird prophet. And um, he is not some kind of moral lawgiver. He is the king of all, and he is the reconciler of all things. So what does it mean to be reconciled then? Let's look here in verse 21. It says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So now in verse 21, we have, and although you... So the question is, who is the you there? And based on our teaching of of Romans 1 through 3 that Brother Keith's been preaching on Sunday mornings these last few weeks, we know that all men were alienated and hostile from God. So the you there is everybody. You are one of the you, as anyone listening to this could say. We were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He, Christ, has now reconciled you. Who is you here? The believers here receiving this letter. So the you immediately there is to those believers reading and hearing, but it applies broader in a broader sense, right? But the you who have been reconciled is more specific, right? Those who have come um, and responded in, in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus and submitted their lives to him, he is now their Lord. So that's the you who were reconciled. Now that word reconciled in the Greek has a fullness attached to it. You were in one state of being, you were away, apart, and now you've been fully brought into another state. And and the word we like to use a lot to, to talk about this is justified, right? You've been reconciled, you've been justified before God. And then we see why has he reconciled us in verse 22 there as well. You are reconciled, he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him. Who's the him there? The Father, right? Before the Father, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He has reconciled us, believers, and and justified us so that he could present us holy and blameless before the Father. He is sanctifying us. So we have justification through Christ, and sanctification means to be made holy and blameless and more like Jesus for a future glory where we are presented to the Father in in complete holiness and blamelessness there. So this is what Christ is doing. This is what he's done. This is why he has reconciled us. Now, the question then how does he do this? How does he sanctify us? How does he keep us and hold us? Well, one way is through calling us to continue in the faith, staying close to the gospel, not removed from the hope of the gospel. Verse 23 here is not a statement against the doctrine of perseverance, but it is one of the ways that God preserves his people is he calls us to continue in steadfastness and faithfulness. This word here calls believers to continue in the faith and remember the hope of the gospel. And then God's Spirit, as they hear this, gives them grace to do just that, to continue in the faith and to hold on to the gospel. So, what does all this mean for us? What's the application for us today? 
the first question you have to ask is, have you been reconciled through the blood of Christ? This is the only way one can be reconciled to God, to be brought into a a state of of righteousness before him. It is through the death um, of Jesus. He has paid the price for your sin. And if you have not been reconciled to God, if you don't know if you have, please call our church office and, and speak with one of our pastors. We would love to talk with you about what it means to be reconciled to God through Jesus' blood. Now, if you're a believer and you have been reconciled, you go, yes, I am. I have been reconciled to God through Christ, his blood. He is my only hope. He is the way. I'm not trusting in other things, just Jesus for my salvation. The question is, are you filled with the knowledge of his will? Like Paul has prayed for these churches here, um, are you full of the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Now, God has revealed his will to us in his word, right? You have access immediately to the will of God for your life in um, the Bible. So read it, but also pray as you read for the Holy Spirit to do a work in your heart to help you to understand in all spiritual wisdom and understanding that you would believe and not just read, but believe this word that is true and good and right. And then our third point here for you believers is to remain close to the gospel. Don't ever get over it. Remember that you were formerly alienated and hostile and engaged in evil deeds, but Christ has reconciled you. So then continue in the faith and proclaim what was proclaimed to you. This gospel, this good news that Paul was made a minister of in verse 23, you are also made a minister of. Take that news and share it, proclaim it, that God would reconcile more to himself um, through the blood of Christ. Thank you for listening today. I pray that you're encouraged um, in your faith and that you have um, a greater knowledge of who Christ is because of his word that he has given us today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you um, for this word, that we can know you, that you've revealed yourself to us and there isn't some kind of mysterious, special knowledge where we have to have some incredible moment of revelation. Instead, God, you have given it to us plainly where we can understand it and pray, Lord, that your spirit would take this word and and, um, illuminate it to us and enlighten our hearts and our minds that we would believe it and our lives would be changed by it, Lord, that we would truly know it and love it and um, walk in obedience to your will. God, would you do that in your people? God, I pray for anyone listening that that does not know you. Would you reconcile them? Lord, would you bring them near and call them to yourself um, through the through the blood of, of Christ? Would they be made right before you? Lord, I ask that you would help us. God, give us grace. We cannot keep ourselves, so would you keep us until the day of Christ? In his name, amen.